0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: I'm so glad I remembered my name today, and that's... Why is that, Jordan?
1: Well, if you don't already know, we're taping this live at the American Association of Law Libraries. Hello to everyone in the crowd. Uh, we're not in a library, so feel free to make some noise and <laughs> let everybody know you're here. And there we go. <laughs> All right, or at least don't boo us during this. Um <laughs> or us. So, N- no shushing, please. No shushing. <laughs> Hold all shushes till after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to be here doing our first live recording and we're here to talk about a really important topic.
0: Yeah, so we've been on hiatus for a little while since the Supreme Court uh, wrapped up its term at the end of June, uh, but we're back today to talk about an issue that we've been keeping our eye on for really several terms now and that is a lack of gender diversity on the court. So of course we know that there's a lack of gender diversity on the bench. There are only three justices. Only a third of the justices are females. So we should rectify that. But um, the numbers are actually worse whenever we look at the advocates who argue in front of those justices. And so uh, we're going to be joined by a guest later, right, Jordan?
1: Uh, right. We have Jamie Santos, an appellate attorney with Goodwin Proctor, who's briefed over a dozen cases before the Supreme Court and co hosts another must listen. Supreme Court podcast called "Strict Scrutiny," and we're looking forward to chatting with Jamie about this issue. But first, well,
0: is there any uh, gender diversity on that podcast? <laughs> I well, think it's. I think it's. I think they're getting closer to the fabulous ladies, right?
1: They're closer to the ideal that Justice Ginsburg yes. has discussed, I believe.
0: When there are nine, that will be enough female justices. Exactly,
1: as she said. Well,
0: it's a fabulous listen, and we'll be excited to talk to Jamie later. Uh, But first, we have our star intern, uh, Jake Holland, who did some recent reporting on this issue for us and kind of took a fresh look at the numbers. And so, uh, Jake, you know, you reported a bit about the numbers from this year. Can you tell us how uh, the numbers stacked up?
2: Sure, so this year only about 17% of oral arguments before the high court were presented by women. And while that number may seem low, it's pretty consistent with what we've been seeing over the past five years.
0: Hmm. Okay. So you say it's been consistent over the past five years. We've been seeing those same kind of low numbers.
2: Right. So we've seen some peaks and some dips, but generally over the past five, six years, it's kind of fluctuated between um, about 10 and 20 percent. So it's a little bit lower than what it was a couple years ago, but still pretty consistent with what we've been seeing for the past half a decade.
0: And so in your article, you talk about some pipeline issues that we want to chat with Jamie a a bit more about, but you say that there's some Issues there, and one of them that you point to is the lack of gender diversity in female clerks. But how are those numbers looking uh, in recent terms?
2: Right, so those numbers have actually been on the rise for the past few years or so. This year is actually the first term in which there were more um, female clerks, Supreme Court clerks, um, than male clerks. Um, and part of that is just because the justices have hired um, more women clerks. Um, in particular, this year, Brett Kavanaugh's um, four clerks were all female, um, which was also a first for the court.
0: Yeah, we saw Justice Ginsburg give him a shout out in one of her speeches about um, having all female clerks. So that's nice.
2: And so, Jake, another
1: uh, stepping stone you mentioned in your piece is the Solicitor General's office. What can you tell us about what you found in your research about how that factors into this
2: phenomenon? Right, so the Solicitor General's Office is a pretty important pipeline um, in terms of Supreme Court oral advocacy, both because um, many people who go through the SG's office and then re-enter private practice, they continue to do that kind of high-level appellate work, but also just because within the Solicitor General's Office itself, in any given term, about one-third of oral arguments we see are from lawyers from that office. Um, So this term, those numbers um, were a little bit lower than they were in years past. Um, There were five female uh, assistants to the Solicitor General um, and 11 male assistants to the Solicitor General And then when Don Verley was Solicitor General a few years ago, um, those numbers were a bit higher. There was actually parity with eight female assistants and eight male assistants. Um, So the numbers have taken a little bit of a dip.
0: Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, movement. Uh, Several prominent females uh, left the SG's office at once. Um, But also we've seen some movement within that office over the Mueller investigation. Some people have been detailed to other offices. So it'll be interesting to watch that um, as it develops. And Jake, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Should
0: we have Jamie now?
1: Yes. Apropos of the topic, let's let's upgrade this this podcast.
0: <laughs> Sorry, Jamie, we couldn't get the fire like you requested uh, on your entrance. I was hoping
3: for a, a dramatic entrance, but I guess will take me not tripping over the speaker on the way in. That's that's a I, victory in itself.
0: I don't know. It could have been pretty dramatic <laughs> if you had if you had fallen. Splatted right in front of everyone. That'd be great. So, you know, Jamie, I think, you know, we should take a step back before we start talking about some of the issues that we were talking with Jake about um, and talk about why diversity in this context is important in the first place. I mean, why is it um, that we should be watching out for gender diversity among the advocates?
3: So I think that's a good question, because obviously men have and can argue cases competently before the court. I think gender diversity matters for a few reasons. Um, It matters, the kind of simple reason is representation matters. If women are half of the profession, women should have the opportunity to do this work that's seen as kind of the most significant and widely impacting in the legal profession. Um, It also matters because I think, I guess diversity begets diversity. So if, if law students and undergrad students see diverse attorneys doing this work, they can be inspired to go to law school, to enter the profession and to do this type of work as well. Um, I think it also matters because I think for me I see something a little strange about the very maleness of the Supreme Court bar given that a significant part of the courts docket disproportionately affects women and this isn't just reproductive rights cases but also cases about you know health care and discrimination and harassment and um, parental rights all of those cases are frequently before the court and so it's strange to me to see kind of uh, a room full of men argue these cases, which are then decided by, in most instances, a majority um, a group of men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, to me, is just kind of strikes a little bit of a chord, um, and and I suspect or hope it does with others. And then I think maybe the last reason is um, the... Being a Supreme Court advocate is a big stepping stone to other really important positions. So government service, um, uh, judgeships, and we see these same gender, um, uh, lack of gender diversity in those those institutions, too. So just as one example, if you look at the Eighth Circuit, I looked at the Eighth Circuit's website last night and they have 16 judges on the court. Um, Do either of you know how many of those judges are women?
1: I feel like the answer is going to be not many. One. One. One
3: female judge on the entire Eighth Circuit. Um, so, I think that the, the challenges of diversity in the Supreme Court bar are kind of indicative yeah. of problems in the profession, but they also reproduce those problems at the highest level of public service. You
0: know, this is a very serious topic, but I think we should talk about maybe you getting some diversity in your free time if you're looking
3: up the 8th Circuit's website. <laughs> <laughs> this I am <laughs> I am a nerd, this yeah. is kind of my jam.
1: <laughs> so, we talked about obviously the the importance of the the issue, what do you think are some of the the causes of how we've gotten here?
3: So I think you talked about some of them earlier with Jake, you know, the um, SG's office, which you mentioned, is the most repeat player before the court. I think in the SG's office right now, there are four assistants who are women, so if four in the biggest repeat player before the court are men, it's going to have a huge impact on the diversity numbers. But then I think there's problems in private practice too. The, the credentials that are often seen as just critical Supreme Court clerkships and uh, a stint in the SG's office often also you know have pipeline problems. But it's not like there just aren't women doing this work. There are tons of brilliant, amazing advocates that just aren't getting the cases that their male colleagues are getting. So you look, Mm. Kate Stetson has argued a hundred appeals. She's one of the most widely respected lawyers in the D.C. appellate bar and probably nationwide. She's argued just two cases before the court. Wow. Um, Deanne Maynard, who is a partner at Morrison & Forrester, is an absolute force at argument. She argued a case while nine months pregnant at the SG's office, and I think she won that case too. She has gotten only three cases since leaving the SG's office. Um, So I don't think it's just that there aren't women doing this. There are women. They're just not getting as many cases. And I think if we think about why that's the case, uh, you know, one reason is the best way to get a Supreme Court argument is to have gotten several dozen arguments before. (laughs) And so the universe of people who have done that is basically Lisa Blatt and a bunch of men. Um, So it makes it difficult. And that kind of of deficiency between dozens of arguments and fewer gets worse each year. Mm I think clients are also right. risk averse, right? So in-house counsel, they have to answer to their boards of directors, to their executives, and you're just never going to get pushback from hiring Paul Clement or Carter Phillips right. or Seth Waxman for a case. It can, it's seen as taking a risk on mm-hmm. someone who's brilliant and amazing, but has fewer arguments under their belt. And then I think the last issue is something I've heard from many members of the Supreme Court bar, with, which with whom I've spoken, which is that women just aren't seen as experts in their field in the same way that their male colleagues are. And this isn't something that's specific to the legal profession. I'll give right. you some like sports analogies for fun. Um, <laughs> oh no, yeah, I'm mean, gonna be lost here. <laughs> so there was a, um, oh, a, an NBA, a WNBA um, a basketball star who wrote an op-ed last year who said every time she walks down the street, there are men who come up to her and. And tell her, you know, let's play a game of pickup. I bet I could beat you. You saw last year or last week, there was a story about how many men think they could score a point against Serena Williams. We see, you know, random dudes challenge, publicly challenging um, female congresswomen to publicly televised debates saying, you know, I could mop the floor with them. And so I think there's this very real sense that, women, that when women do something, it's not that hard or that men could do it better. And I think if, for example, Paul Clement got a cert grant in a case. There would just never be a question that, of course, he's going to argue it. No one would ever question it. But I think that's not the case for everyone. Hmm. And we saw a case last term that um, Sarah Harrington got a cert grant in a case in which there was no circuit split. All four or five courts to have decided the issue, decided it against her client's position. And then in-house counsel argued the case instead of her. Hmm. And, and, and lost the case five to four. And I think there are many people, including myself, who wonder if Sarah could have gotten a different result. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think there's this concern that women just aren't seen as having the same commanding authority as male Supreme Court experts. Well, that, that's a lot of um, issues to tackle. Yes. I mean,
0: do you see any solutions that are either being implemented
3: now or that you think could work in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there are tons of things that can be done, Mm -hmm. which is good. One of them you mentioned earlier. So there was this kind of exodus of women from the SG's office Mm -hmm. that are now in private practice. Um, and I um, am absolutely looking forward to seeing how they kind of take over the bar in the coming years. I, I think Sarah Harrington right, has an argument them, next year. Yeah. I think Nicole Taharsky mm-hmm. at Mayor Brown also has an argument next year, um, and so that's going to play a big role. I think the SG's office can in, can improve its hiring practices. And what I have heard from the SG's office when I brought this issue up is, you know, well, the applicant pool is the applicant pool. We can only you know do with what you know with with what's in front of us. And I just think that's just not true maybe the sg's office is used to just sitting back and waiting for the applications to roll in but employers including busy federal judges across the country have improved the diversity of their applicant pool by proactively reaching out to underrepresented groups and and seeking out their applications so I think the SG's office can also look at, you know, how do they evaluate resumes? Are they favoring certain degrees or certain work experiences over others? How are they evaluating interviewees? Because mm-hmm. um, I think we've we've seen empirically that impir- implicit bias can play a role, especially when you have an office that's male dominated, that's making right. the hiring decisions. Right. And we've only
0: seen, I mean, one acting and one actual uh, solicitor general who is a female. And so the first uh, solicitor general who was a female who was actually confirmed to that position was Elena Kagan. So that wasn't that long ago. Yeah.
3: And obviously it's not impossible because past, um, as I think Jake mentioned, Solicitor General Verrilli had, you know, his assistants were I think eight and eight split. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not, I, I just don't buy the idea that this is impossible. I think in private practice there are things we can do too. I think that appellate lawyers need to do a better job at creating opportunities for diverse lawyers even if maybe they don't have all of the credentials, but they have all of the promise of some, you know, former folks from the SG's office or Supreme Court clerks, that's certainly what I have benefited from. Um, I do Supreme Court work because a partner at my firm, Willie J, saw me as, I think, someone who was, you know, detail-oriented, a good researcher, a good writer, and mostly just inexhaustible, and he made room for me on his teams. So I think doing that kind of thing, I also think that partners at firms really need to work better with clients to give oral argument opportunities to kind of younger attorneys. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard, I've spoken with a bunch of folks in-house and they have all enthusiastically said, we would absolutely entertain the idea of having really talented senior associates or very junior partners argue appeals or big dispositive motions if partners came to us. And then I've heard from tons of law firm partners, you know, it's just too hard to get clients to agree to this. Mm -hmm. And I think there's them disconnect there, um, and so I think working with clients to create those opportunities will help improve the pipeline, and and judges can help too. So there, there are kind of oral arguments have been vanishing in many courts. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of motions are taken under submission. I've seen some judges have have rules that say you know if the person arguing has had fewer than five years experience, yeah. I will presumptively have arguments. I would. I would like to see that, like fewer than ten cases, because right. like in big law firms, mostly you're going to have zero arguments. In yeah, because that could take yeah. a while for yeah. that to yeah.
1: actually happen. Totally.
3: But that kind of thing could make a huge difference in improving the talent level and the pipeline for you know future Supreme Court advocates. And I guess I'd say you know there are members of the Supreme Court bar who argue regularly argue four or five six cases a term, which is amazing and awesome. But I'm not not sure that that actually even serves clients' interests, right? Like Supreme Court cases are exhausting. They're intense. And if you're just always preparing for your next oral argument, are you really engaged in the briefing at the level you should be? Are you developing future talent in the way that I think you should be? So, you know, I might kind of take a look at, at whether that is advancing the ball and advancing your clients' interests.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I guess one thing that's kind of, you know, we haven't talked about a lot of, we're talking about gender diversity, but I suspect that a lot of the same problems that are underlying gender diversity or the lack thereof is also uh, contributing to a lack of other kinds of diversity at the Supreme Court. I mean, do you think that's true?
3: Absolutely. I think, you know, in clerk hiring, we see that a ton. Um, The. Diversity among African American law clerks has been, right. you know, abysmal, um, and among other groups as well. Um, in part, some folks have said that that's, you know, a product of the lack of diversity at top law schools. That's another argument that I'm not totally sure I buy. Um, I think that if there are efforts to really reach out to folks, mm-hmm. um, you can. I also think, you know, Justice Sotomayor regularly hires a diverse slate of law clerks, so it's really not impossible. Right. Um, her law clerks are all very impressive. Um, so yeah, I was really
0: surprised by a fact. I think we saw a couple terms ago um, that. Justice Ginsburg had only hired one African American law yeah. clerk in her years on the bench, which was really surprising to me because I know she does. She is very conscientious of diversity. So, yeah,
3: yeah, I think that all of us have blind spots when it comes mm-hmm. to different types of diversity. I mean, I think you look at Justice Kennedy, his kind of law clerk hiring practice. It was something like 85 percent male. Wow. Um, which is one reason why we might see an increase now with Justice Kavanaugh on the court, yeah. since he has um, been attentive and and he's one who has said, you know, I proactively reached out right. to certain groups. Groups at law schools to try to get more applicants. Um, so that's one reason why we could, you know, see a change in gender diversity and perhaps in racial diversity as well. Yeah. Okay. Anything else, Jordan?
1: I think we covered everything. Yeah.
0: Well, that was Jamie, great. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you for having me. For our first live taping. Um, this is very exciting. There's a bunch of folks around. Mm-hmm. I know. I think we're going to have ah. to do something dramatic, though. Like, somebody's going to have to fall off the stage. Or, a human
3: pyramid? Oh, or okay. okay. All right.
1: We'll, um, add, we'll add that all in after.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we'll do CG for that
0: aspect yeah. of
1: it.
3: Well, thank you all
0: so much for listening today. Uh, We will reconvene officially back in October when the Justices do for their new term. Um, But we'll be sprinkling in some interesting episodes along the way.
1: Yeah. Well, you can follow along with us until then. And thanks for listening and watching.
2: Suspending the rules is Bloomberg government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill.
0: As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them.
2: Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous
3: vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing.
2: You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about.bgov.com.